Episode number two, Jonathan Wright, Cross-Cultural Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. All right, well, welcome to Storytelling with Children, your podcast covering all things related to the movement of telling stories to children. And today I have with me on the line, oh, I am Eric Wolf, host of the Storytelling with Children podcast. I got so excited the last podcast, I totally forgot to introduce myself. I have with me on the line right now, Jonathan Wright, my good friend and fellow storyteller, who is a specialist and, I would say, an all-around expert in the art of cross-cultural storytelling and understanding how to uh, work with other cultures in storytelling. Um, Jonathan is half of Jonathan and Harold Wright, two storytellers who have been specializing in Ohio Japanese stories, Appalachian and uh, Ohio Appalachian stories in recent years. Often they work in tandem, but both Jonathan and Harold also tell solo. They're both very good storytellers, I know, because I've seen them both. In addition to folk tales, fairy tales, historic tales, myths, and legends, they have numerous personal stories, which are quite funny, I might add. They, these they tell to a wide variety of ages and audiences. Uh, their storytelling programs include That Jack and His Kin, Famous and Fabulous, Infamous Ohioans, From Ohio Across the Ocean and Back, 2,000 Years of Tales from Japan. Um, Harold is well-known in some, in some circles for his translations of Japanese poetry and other books, but today we're interviewing Jonathan, and Jonathan has been traveling with Harold to Japan for many years on a student exchange program um, with Antioch Education Abroad to Japan each summer at the Kyoto Sega, is that right, Jonathan? Sega. Sega like University. <laughs> each fall, Jonathan coordinated, and they worked with Japanese students from the Kyoto Sega, uh, who participated in American fieldwork studies at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Always the rights have used these activities and contacts to research and collect Japanese stories, often in the oral tradition, continually looking for the richness, local flavor, and dialect, which Harold then would translate and adapt into English. As they traveled Ohio, they continued to collect also Ohio stories. Jonathan, in particular, had received a grant from the National Association of Foreign Student Advisors for the purposes um, of learning about how storytelling and communication can... Well, you say it, Jonathan. How did... Well, it was an effort to uh, facilitate language and culture acquisition through storytelling uh, and through storytelling together, students from two different cultures telling a story together. And... In particular, one of the things that I'm very impressed with, Jonathan, is that her ability to be respectful um, with other people, no matter what the situation. And that is something I have a great deal of. Um, it's very important to me and people that I know. And so I just want to say thanks for coming on, Jonathan, to the oh, program. You're welcome. Um, now, you, we're going to talk about cross-cultural storytelling today. So could you please, the first question that comes to mind when you talk about cross-cultural storytelling 
is honestly, before you brought it up, I never really heard of it. And what, I'm, what I immediately think is, oh, you're saying multicultural, just a different word for it. So what is the difference between cross-cultural storytelling and multicultural storytelling? And, and why have a new word to describe something that is maybe slightly different but might be within another category? Well, it, it may just be a matter of semantics for some people, uh, and they may define it differently, but I always myself thought multicultural just meant many cultures. It didn't necessarily mean they were interacting. Uh, whereas I feel that if you're telling stories cross-culturally, something is happening between cultures in, in by definition. Maybe you are the person from a different culture who is telling stories from a culture that is not your own. Uh, maybe it's a back and forth between two cultures. Anything that means uh, maybe bridges are forming or at least there is interaction of two different points of view, two different cultures. Hmm. So when you when you say the word cross-cultural storytelling, you're really saying um, the skill of being able to speak a story from another culture and accurately um, display what it means and its deeper meanings. I guess I am addressing the fact that, um, and it's more confusing in America than other places where we come from so many cultures, but if you're telling a story that did not come from your own tradition, and that's well-defined, for example, in the Jewish tradition or in the African-American tradition or in the Irish tradition. And if you are not from a tradition such as that, and yet you're telling a story from that culture, you need to do some homework. You need to get your, your facts right, your point of view right. You need to be culturally sensitive so that you don't tell a sad story happy, for a simple example. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen people um, tell stories that were extremely inappropriate, um, and the audience and they had no idea that that story was inappropriate. Um, in working with Native Americans, um, I just I encountered a lot of uh, different points of view about which stories were appropriate when. How does how do you go about learning about these, or how did you go about in Japan? learning about the appropriateness of different stories. Well, I had a wonderful boost in terms of becoming acclimated to Japan by having a husband who had spent 50 years learning about that culture in every detail and fluent in the language. But when you go to a foreign talking, if you are trying to absorb what is going on around you, and then when you see something that you just truly cannot figure out, something you don't, don't understand, uh, uh, someone stopping in front of uh, an object and looking reverent and maybe praying, and you wonder what is what is the cause of all of that, what is the source of all of that. Then you have something to ask some questions about uh, to help yourself understand that culture. Are you saying that storytellers who may love a story from Japan or from China or from France mm -hmm. or from Brazil – that they shouldn't tell the story until they've been to the country? No, not at all. But I have heard people tell a Chinese story as though it were a Japanese story or tell a Japanese story as though it came from Korea because they didn't know the difference. Hmm. So there's point number one. Really understand where did your story come from. Uh, those cultures are very diverse. Um, 
they are no more alike than, um, well, France and Germany used to be, or um, uh, Turkey and uh, the Philippines. You know, they're very different cultures, and you must understand, you know, the source of your story, and then you can begin to tell it properly. Hmm. So when when we're trying to find the source, I mean, for for some individuals it may seem overwhelming trying to stay within a culture that you know or have some experience with. Um, oh, I highly advocate that we tell stories from other cultures. I just feel that we should do it with some sensitivity. And we have resources all around us to help us do that. This is a world of instant communication. We can um, get on the Internet or find a documentary that is going to tell us a lot about just about any place we choose. We have foreign students at even our small colleges, much less our universities. I believe Ohio State has something like 2,000 Japanese students in addition to other Asian students. So there are people in our midst that we can speak with and uh, they can help us to understand, if not a specific story, at least questions in that story about their culture. We have uh, families who have traveled through the military or as missionaries and come back and can tell us certain points of view. Um, So that's just a start of all the things that we could do to try to help ourselves understand a particular story that we love and want to tell. I know in New York City there were many different cultural centers that mm-hmm. represented the different ethnic groups that were in New York. Yeah, it just it just never occurred to me that I could go in there and say, "Hey, I'm working on this story for um, a school, and I'd like you just to hear it and tell me what I'm doing, you know, if it sounds appropriate." Well, it's pretty much been my experience when I have found groups like that at colleges that they're they're really quite happy to think that someone cares enough to first of all, have found a story from their culture that this stranger loves, and then to come to them and ask, you know, how can I get the flavor of this correct? Do I understand that this woman was really in charge, or was that a misconception? You know, whatever it is in that story that you're trying to figure. I think the the thing thing that comes up for me is is when I started telling stories, I did a lot of Native American work. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I had a upfront conversation with with a native woman who basically explained to me how it was really important that I get my own stories mm-hmm. and that it was okay for me to use the stories for teaching, but it was wasn't really okay for me just to entertain with the stories. That was her perspective, and some people listening to this may not agree with that um but but I kind of really took in what she said, and i I came to an understanding within myself that I would tell certain stories that I was very attached to and I would explore mm-hmm. the different traditions they come from. I understand that in America there are as many native nations and cultures as there are on any other continent and mm-hmm. different cultures, you know, so it's it can be very diverse. You know, some some native tribes say you can't tell stories when it's not winter. Some yes. some tribes say you can't tell stories that involve the spirits actually speaking and some mm-hmm. say you can you know, they all have their different traditions. And that can be a lot of work. but but the point was just that when i when i turned around and started looking into my own culture and trying to find my own stories um i realized that there was a wide variety of material to pull from Mm -hmm. and i didn't have to be so caught up in being afraid of offending someone that i had a lot of material to take right Uh, well my personal uh way of dealing with a lot of that is 
you know, I very much love Native American stories too, and I and I love the African American stories, and so. I have chosen through the years one Native American story and one African American story that I love so much that I call them my typical story from those cultures because I'll sometimes, you know, don't you have a story from the African American culture? And I'll say, well, yes, I do, but there are so many wonderful African American tellers, you know, they can tell those stories. But let me tell you one that I've chosen to tell that's typical of the beauty you'll find in that genre. Hmm. And especially in Japan, I would be asked to tell a Native American story or an African American story because they don't have so many Native Americans and African Americans among them to tell them themselves. Well, that gets into the next point of what this woman said to me. She said, you know, it's one thing for you to go somewhere where there is no competition, you know, where you are the only one presenting um, these stories. And then that's, that's very different than for you to show up here in New York where there's 35 other native stories trying to make native storytellers trying to make a living and you're not. I agree. And, you know, they could do the work. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, even with the stories that I tell a lot, the Japanese stories, I am occasionally asked by someone who's wanting to hire me, uh, you know, well, you're not from Japan, you know, can you tell me where I can find a Japanese teller? And I can tell them where to find Japanese storytellers, but the ones that are listed that I know are on the coast. I don't know any that are right here among us since my students are no longer here. And so sometimes someone has an unlimited budget and can say, oh, yes, I will book Brenda Wong Aoki from California. But um, often they say, you know, well, since you have studied this culture so much, uh, I think that our budget will let me hire you. (laughs) And, um, you know, they would rather have the story from the culture than to not have the story at all. Yeah, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And I so, think that's what stories are for. They're to be told, they're to be shared, they're to help us understand each other. So as a, as someone who's telling a cross-cultural story, like let's do some examples from Japanese culture. What okay. are some common mistakes that you see storytellers making, without naming any names, of course, Mm-hmm. Um, but what are some common mistakes that a beginner might make in working? You already outlined one, where they they tell a Korean story as if it's from Japan, or they tell a Chinese. In fact, I know I've done that one. I've told a, there's a very there's a very famous Thailand story that I always tell as if it's from China. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, are there other common mistakes that you see storytellers making? Well, if we're just speaking of Japanese stories, which is what I know <laughs> the mm-hmm. most. Um, I would be looking for such things as, um, you know, how is the woman speaking in the story if it is an ancient story? Because women did not look directly at people when they talked. Uh, You know, they would not look at a man or they would not look at a boy. Um, They would look with eyes averted. So what what are the lines of respect that are being shown? And that's easy to tell. when a woman's walking across the stage in a Japanese story, if she's bound up in a kimono, she must take nice little steps. Um, so all of these things can can tell me if someone has learned the gestural uh, culture of the story uh, from Japan. So learning a, another culture story is not just about learning 
the what's culturally appropriate or what symbols represent what or um, how to how to speak a couple words in the language, but it also has to do with learning a body language that represents the culture. I think it has a lot to do with the body language, yes. That's a new idea to me. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly with gestures. Um, I mean, it's perhaps uh, better not to gesture than to make one that's grossly wrong. Um, you know, if you're if you're saying uh, pointing to yourself in a Japanese story, you point at your nose. That's not very American to do, but uh, that's how you say me with a gesture. So, uh, offensive gesture in another language, uh, another culture that in America means very little. I find this fascinating. <laughs> I just. You know, this idea that, um, I mean, the idea that bodies represent stories is an old idea to me. But the idea that bodies, that my body can represent an entire culture. Mm -hmm. So how would a Korean or a Chinese story be different in a Japanese story in the physical body? Well, I don't know that much about Korean and Chinese stories. I haven't studied those cultures. That's Um, fair enough. Uh, offhand, I tend to think that uh, um, the gestures are a little more bold in Korea. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a more uh, vibrant sort of uh, uh, culture, you know, in terms of uh, expressiveness. Um, but I really can't comment further than that because I haven't studied them. Right. Mm. So as a, as a storyteller, if we have a story that we're wanting to develop that's from a different culture... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our first steps is owning the story, finding it, learning it. But another step is when we're practicing the story is to find someone within that culture to show the story to. Not that we're seeking permission for telling the story, but that we're seeking um, to own the fact we're telling it and that we love it and that we want them to to give us some feedback on how we're doing it representing the culture. That's ideal if you can. But let's let's go to the real basic basics before yeah. we even get that far. The first thing you want to do is make sure you're pronouncing the name of your story correctly. Hmm. That's a real botched up thing in so many told stories is is not caring enough to know the name of their story as accurately pronounced. Or the names of your characters if you're going to give them native names, you know, native to Japan or native to Russia, know the names and pronounce them right. Uh it's sort of like we all feel that we like to have our name pronounced correctly. Uh, so do the stories in those other cultures need to have that respect. Uh, then you can probably avoid things like regions and towns uh, unless your story revolves around a certain town or revolves around a certain river. But if it does, get that name correct too. And then, <laughs> beyond that, you probably don't need to have any other foreign language in it. Um, and you could choose to translate the name of the story. You don't have to call it Isun Boshi. You can call it Little One Inch, and then you don't have to remember how to pronounce it right. Um, but even even with that, you probably want to call the character by a Japanese name, unless you just call him the boy. So um, once we've gotten through this basic area of making sure the names are correct, Mm -hmm. um, we've made sure that we have an understanding of of what the story... Then we go on to developing the characters in terms of understanding their their motivations and... 
Well, it's going to depend on your story. Some stories are going to be so similar to one that we know in our own country that it's going to be a lot less confusing confusing for us. But if it's one that's involving a shape-shifting animal that isn't even uh, existing in America, a uh, tanuki, for example, have you do you uh, have you ever seen a tanuki? Is it a fox? No, it's a uh, it's a badger dog, but it's a, it's its own animal. It's oh, not yes. a dog, and it's not a badger. I it's have a seen it because you mentioned it once before, and I was really curious, mm-hmm. and I looked it up online and read all about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the big shapeshifters in Japan. So you know, if you're going to choose to tell a story about a tanuki, you have to first of all. Find a picture of him somewhere. There are books I could turn you to to find that, or I'm, I'm sure it would show up online now. They still exist in the mountains of Japan. There are still live ones. But it's all very uh, famous caricature in Japan that is uh, in pottery on sizes from one inch to ten feet tall in front of stores and things because it's a symbol of good luck. Hmm. I think I saw a cartoon movie featuring them. Mm-hmm. They had extensive. It was mm-hmm. quite good. I can't remember the name, though, unluckily. It was by the same person who made Spirited Away. Ah, yes. Uh, it was quite good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but if you've chosen a story about a uh, fox or if you've chosen a story about a rabbit, that's an animal we know. So you would know a lot about uh, you know, the gestures of a rabbit. You know, it, They still wiggle their little noses and flop their, their big old ears, just like in America. So uh, it, it depends on what you've chosen for your story, how much homework you have to do. A, a tanuki is a lot like a raccoon in its mannerisms, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. But well, it's nocturnal. Right. It had a the lot. same, they, they're very a familiar sort of face, raccoon but... look. Um, anyway, sorry, I could talk about animals all day, so let's get off that topic before I keep <laughs> going back to it. Um, so, so researching the mannerisms of the creatures that were being and, and finding out the correct ecological relationships that might exist between them because it might be slightly different or it might be strange in some way, and you have to do a little research on that. Um, so making sure we have an understanding of how their bodies move. Mm-hmm. Uh, other important points before character development? At that point we look at characters? or Well, think about uh, you can think about your story in many ways. Like I think it's important personally if you're telling a story from an island country, such as Japan is, the sea is going to have such an impact on life because it's all around. And it's and it's a very beautiful, wonderful thing, and it's a very uh, dangerous thing that is all around. This is quite different from the mentality of someone in the middle of America in Ohio that is quite far from the sea and doesn't have that respect or that awe, perhaps. Um, now, most of us by now have, have been able to go to an ocean, but some of us still have not been. I had a son-in-law who until recently had not seen an ocean. And, mm. uh, you know, he's your age. So it depends, I think, uh, on your experiences. Um, I think it's important to know um, what the country was ruled by. Uh, if it was ruled by an emperor, don't call him a king. If it's ruled by a tribal chief, don't call him a president. Uh I think a story is influenced by whether it, it was in a rural or city setting and and um, and by whether the people are perceived as a peaceful people or a warring people. And it may be quite different 
in our understanding of a Japanese story since we know very little about Shintoism or Buddhism living in a Christian country. So we might have to do a little bit of research there. And that can be very confusing. I mean, sometimes people think the two things are the same, and sometimes um, there's some confusion about uh, pagoda, for example, or temple as opposed to church. Mm-hmm. In in working with stories from other cultures, um, one of the things that I find that happens a lot with me is a feeling that as I grow to love the story, I become more and more attached to it. I begin to want to make changes to it. Or if I don't want to make a change to it, I begin to think, oh, I want to create a story just like this one. Um, and at that point when I do that, I really have to let go of the title of Japanese story or though I could say inspired by Japanese story. Do you do you find, as a storyteller who tells a lot of Japanese stories, that you mm-hmm. want to t- create your own stories within the genre? And what do you do when you do that? I mean, how do you deal with that, that issue? Do I want to make an original story that is fantasy that is taking place in Japan? Using all the different metaphors and characters that you love so much. Well, I, I can't say that I've had to do that yet just because there are you know, so many thousands of stories in Japan. It was an oral tradition there for for 2,000 years. Um, you know, the, I can't begin to tell all the stories that are in the books. But in terms of a personal story of mine that is Japan, like, you know, Jonathan in Japan kind of story, I can be the stupid American in Japan. You know, if I, if I do something culturally insensitive, that's part of the story perhaps because, you know, it was me, second year there, really sticking my foot in my mouth. And boy, did I learn something, and, you know, hopefully in a funny way by the time the story is told. You know, this conversation is completely different than it would have been 10 years ago because 10 years ago it would be very difficult for anyone to learn any of these things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with the Internet, that's all changed. Oh, gosh, you know, it? You can yes. just, just type it up, and there's no excuse for not at least having some, you know, being informed in some way. Right. You can take a virtual tour of the university where we used to do our exchange. You can see it in all detail, um, you know, on the Internet. So, uh, yeah, since you can be right there as soon as you click the right dial on your the right key on your computer, no excuse. <laughs> but still now, uh, getting back to where can you get some richness in these stories, um, when you can uh, come across some people who did learn stories as a child, and unfortunately, I think in, in many cultures, Japan being one, uh, students under 30 or maybe even 35 may not have heard these stories, although there's a revival now with the very small children. But students that are in that older range at least had all these wonderful folk tales on a television series that happened back in the um, um, 70s and 80s. Mm. And so they've processed these stories in their own minds, and I have found some wonderful richness either having a story translated that was told in Japanese uh, as someone remembered it, you know, one of the folk tales, either piecing together all their views they've seen or what their grandmother used to tell them because grandmothers are still telling stories if the children will listen. (laughs) Um, Or 
those who've spoken English, you can do some wonderful stuff just saying, you know, well, let's let's work out a uh, a version of um, of Crane Meeting is one I did that with, with uh, one of Harold's teaching assistants. And we just had more fun working on a beautiful version of Crane Maiden um, with her remembering this or that from this or that grandparent or aunt or uncle or just a visual image in some book and her being an artist that was something she could talk about. So in a sense, you were creating a story within the tradition, but you were doing it with with someone else who was from the tradition. Right. And with, within all your knowledge and context of all, this, all what you've studied and over the so years. And so I could say, tell me exactly how, too, the little girl looked. Tell me how she looked, because I might not find that in a book. And so then this this Japanese mind, you know, uh, steeped in folk tradition over there, could say, oh, you know, the most thin kimono and, and so forth and so on, you know, just exactly. And And so I could prompt... Uh, the areas where I wanted more flesh in my story. Hmm. So w- within within working uh, within another culture, and you're, you're you're working with other storytellers, or you're working with people who may not see themselves as storytellers, but they have the stories. Uh, what are the different issues that come up in in taking these stories then to the United States? You know, you published or Harold has translated all this different poetry and some stories. Um, and you guys have made these CDs of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so what issues arise in, I mean, you're you're obviously asking people for permission in, in working with them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you bring them back, I mean, do you, how careful are you or, or how? Well, Harold's very careful. For example, we can, um, we can get all kinds of, of wonderful things told us orally, and those can be things that can just be wonderfully rich in embellishing a story, and we always make sure that, you know, credit's given where credit's due, you know, if if it has a particular flavor because we talked to Fujita-san or someone. But Harold can also go back and and check the ancient text and look in the Kojiki and see how that story was. It originally, and, and since it was written down in 953 or something, it's quite <laughs> takeable. <laughs> and uh, and so we can get an excellent translation of the original and then just see where all these things we heard fit into that and embellish it. And uh, and then we also have many books of cross-reference, too, that, uh, that tie together just like they do in some of the studies of European stories. Um, you know, the different provinces... Uh, versions of a particular tale. So within Japanese culture, there's this. What's the codex? Talk about that. Uh, for co- a the Kojiki. Yeah. Oh, that's one of the many, many ancient, first written down books of stories and tales. And um, you know, they were they were written down as though they were facts. It was you know how the world was formed, or or how this or that came to be, as many of the stories were in our own culture. You know, Native Americans have wonderful, uh, rich stories of how the world came to be or why the crow is black or, you know, all those things that you're familiar with in that culture. So this is that same sort of worldview of, of basic grounding of what the people thought at the time when they wrote the stories down. Right. It, when the people began to put down their their beloved uh, culture and stories in writing, 
you know, they chose these things that were dear to their hearts that had been passed around orally for all those years. And those are the first things they wrote down, as, as happens in many cultures. Hmm. So no matter what culture you're working with, there's going to be someone who's, one, gone there before from our culture, mm-hmm. and two, there's going to be a source in that culture that is going to be much older than you, hopefully, going way back, that can give you a reference point as you as you travel within that culture or even read books in a, in your own land. Right, and, and you can trust those those old Japanese books. Now, you 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 must in any culture be suspicious more of of the old old translations. Some of them are the best ever, and some of them had no clue what they were translating. So, so you've got to make sure what your sources are if they're the translated sources. It is tempting when you find a story you really like to think that that's the real one, and then mm-hmm. you find out later that it's not quite the way you thought. No, but maybe it can inspire something of your own that you can just uh, put in a whole different context and, uh, and use a little seed of an idea to make something beautiful, huh? I know a lot of people who are very attached to the Brothers Grimm, and mm-hmm. they're very... And I, I've, I've told the people, you know, Brothers Grimm, that was one version. There are some older versions we have. <laughs> Yes. And they get upset. What? <laughs> yes. And I had a, a German student in our storytelling class once who was uh, one of the teaching assistants, and she told some of the original versions from some of the older texts, and uh, they were so different. You wouldn't recognize them. I didn't. Oh, what a blessing. Yes. Wow. I'm Sid Lieberman, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. Um, so within within working with different cultures, we have the older sources, which exist, which in every culture exists, whether mm-hmm. it's completely oral or um, it has been written down in some way. And there is some disruption there sometimes, but usually there is a source. And then there's also the modern people that you can ask, and there's usually books written within the English world on the culture, mm-hmm. no matter what the culture is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so if you're understanding these cultures then... Beyond that, just be honest with what you're doing. You can say, you know, I want to tell you a wonderful story that I heard from so-and-so who told it just like her grandmother told it to her. And that story may may be totally different from any other version of that story, but you've told them exactly where it came from. You know, someone from Japan whose Japanese grandmother told it or someone from Germany whose German grandmother told it. Okay. And so that's why it's a little different than all these other versions you've heard. See, But that doesn't mean that you're let off lightly, that you should tell the story without the cultural sensitivity and all those things that you've learned from your research. But the, the version can be quite different. And that is incredibly important. I've seen stories. It's almost like when you're uh, getting emails online, you're getting forwarded by somebody, and they leave out little this is from, or this is from here, or that comes mm-hmm. from this book. And then as it gets passed around, it gets totally morphs into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and storytelling can be like that. We see a story we really like, and we just say, oh, I'll take that story. And you don't realize that it's coming from a very particular situation right. or circumstance. Right. So respect the story, respect the culture. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit more about your storytelling in particular. Um, you... You have a, currently a project with Appalachia you're working on? Yes. Um, 
we wanted to uh, do a lot of research in the 29 Appalachian counties of Ohio. Uh, now, this is not something that no one's ever done before. Heaven knows people have done that before. But we wanted to make sure that this generation of elders got to tell their story like previous generations. And it has been interesting to me that in our uh, statewide group, there are just a few people from these regions, and some counties have no representatives at all of these 29 Appalachian counties. And yet everyone says, and I firmly believe, that this was a much more oral culture than most of the rest of Ohio. These are people who lived in the hills and told stories instead of watching TV. It's just that they don't think of themselves as storytellers or they don't want to share with strangers. There are many, many reasons. But we find the stories in danger of being lost if they're not collected. So uh, we're trying to get out to senior centers and to nursing homes and to people in their own homes and see that people are, uh, the volunteers are trained in um, a wide variety of techniques that we've developed over the years to help people to relax and tell their stories and remember their stories and uh, feed off the story they just heard with their own story of similar um, uh, idea, like a, you know, like a canning story or a, a learning to ride a bike story, any anything at all that everyone can have a, a story about if they think a little bit. Is there some contact point for this group? Well, we're working. We're going to work in five counties: um, Highland and Ross, Hocking, Athens, and Meigs counties. Hmm. Um, and we're going to be starting the project on July 1st, and and try to get around in about a year. So, uh, our headquarters for the project is uh, the Senior Center in Hillsborough, Ohio, and the agency that is uh, sponsoring this whole thing is the Appalachian Highland Storytelling Coalition, which I have been uh, on their board since its inception back in 1995, and this is our latest project, is, is trying to save stories. Oh, that's really cool. So that's another example, actually, of cross-cultural storytelling. Yes, it is. Some people, or I have in the past, thought that uh, multicultural meant multi-country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't until I actually traveled abroad some that I realized that within France or Italy, there are many different points of view. In fact, there are still some places in France and Italy that insist they're not part of those countries. Mm-hmm. For example, Sicily. There are people mm-hmm. in Sicily who think, we don't want to be part of Italy. And that goes on throughout all the different countries of the world, uh, even still in the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but my point here being that uh, within the United States, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of cultures to work within and, and to uh, respect and appreciate. Yes, there are. Uh, and so hopefully what we're going to have is a whole lot of the Ohio Appalachian stories archived and available to be used in uh, all kinds of creative art projects. It could, uh, you know, it could be murals. It can be plays. It can be uh, compiled in in books. Uh, it can be just plain old stories told on stage, which is certainly going to happen because I'm in on the project and I'm going to do that. <laughs> Say the um, the name of the uh, of the organization again. 
Appalachian Highlands Storytelling Coalition. It was begun by Jeannie Snap and uh, Charlene Tarr in 1995, and originally it was a storytelling competition at their county fair, and a very successful one <laughs> that uh, uh, had its last event in 2003. And then we've been doing personal things um, in our own areas until we got all excited about doing the story-saving project. Huh, that is really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like we have gone through our topic pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? Well, I could tell you more about the NASA project that happened in 1994 because I've always thought that that was something uh, well worth doing as a cross-cultural event with college students. Yeah, um, I'd li- I really like to hear about it, actually. Um, what we did is um, we were in Japan, and we knew what group of students, there were 17 coming to Antioch that fall, uh, the ones from Kyoto State University who would be coming. So, And we also had students with us who were going to be on Anti- at Antioch campus in the fall studying in Japan that, that spring, it actually was at that time. So we had a three-day workshop at a mountain retreat uh, just uh, actually uh, teaching some of the storytelling skills, but telling ghost stories, because everyone has a ghost story. Almost any culture you'll find that everyone has a ghost story. And that was just just a warm-up, just a getting-to-know-everybody kind of thing, learning names, hoping the students would become friends, and, and they were all anxious to become friends because you know the the Antioch students were wanting to be comfortable there for their three month experience, and those who were coming in the fall they wanted to know who they were going to be seeing on campus so they'd be comfortable when they came so everyone got to uh to Antioch in the fall, and we did another more intense workshop on just you know how to tell a story and I had told everyone in the summer, bring your favorite Japanese story with you, and mm. they did. And the importance of that was I wanted them to be comfortable telling a story in Japanese, their very favorite story. And then what they had to do was they had to be able to communicate that story, and that's part of the cultural acquisition, language acquisition, to a partner they were assigned at Antioch, an American student, Hmm. who then had to tell that story in English. And that was the way we did it. We didn't tell it as a tandem. We went to 14 schools and... um, and libraries throughout this three-month period that they were here. And the uh, the Japanese student would tell it, actually would be, we call it Western style, because to tell a story like we do, standing up in front of a group, you know, with your gestures and everything um, as a performance, is the Western style of storytelling. The way stories were told in Japan was different. So they got up and told their story, and then the Antioch student got up and told that in English. But we had things with us, like, you know, we had maps so they'd know where the student was from, the the students in the audience, and where the story was from. And we had our Japanese students wearing their native clothing. At some of these events, we served Japanese food. We had musicians among the students who would play their shakuhachi, their flute, or uh, their drums. We played Japanese games if it was small children and made Japanese crafts. So we made it just a whole cultural experience with uh, at least four or five stories each time told to the, the children. Usually it was children. Well, then the next year when the new group of Antioch students went to Japan, they took American stories over there and used huh. that same format. 
but they had to only go to libraries because it's it was very difficult at that time. Uh, their curriculum was so strict, uh, you know, and 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 defined by the uh, well, the Mambucho, the Board of Education, the National Board of Education. So we they went to libraries and uh, and it worked equally well there of telling the story in English and then the Japanese student telling Little Red Riding Hood or Goldilocks or Jack and the Beanstalk in Japanese. <laughs> and what was wonderful about the whole thing, it really did help the students learn their language both ways because they had to speak both Japanese and English to try to communicate a story between each other that they were telling together. They were picking up body language just just by being with this person and talking in this animated and, and sometimes serious way on a project that they had to perform, and uh, and then we had all these little accoutrements with it too, uh, for, you know, the food and the games and whatever. It so like I call work, it a grand success. <laughs> it, it sounds like it would work in almost any situation. I think I'm, it could within think. Um, exchange students. Mm-hmm. Um, because the motivation is there. I mean, they really did want to get to know each other. They really did want to learn the other language. They really did not want to feel like a bump on the log when they went to that country on their exchange. They wanted to try to fit in because they knew the culture a bit. So with all that motivation, it worked very well. Hmm. Well, That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to mention at this point some of the stories uh, that you or shows that you do. Do you want to talk about that for one moment before we end the call? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, you mentioned most of them. When we talk about our stories uh, from Ohio over the ocean back, um, we talk about the whole group of stories that are related between the two countries. You know, uh, personal experiences of us in Japan, uh stories of us back home after we'd been a bit changed, plus all of the uh, folklore and the fairy tales and whatever that we would work into that story. And and sometimes, depending on the interest, we could relate those to similar stories in our own culture or whatever. Uh, uh, You know, there's so many things we can do with such a broad topic as that. Um, Let's see. What what other things did you... 2,000 years of tales from Japan? Um, uh-huh. That's a historic. That gets into the historical tales, the legends, the myths, uh, and the folk tales. Uh, and yes, there are 2,000 years of those. And so, again, we could um, meet just about any topic someone's interested in just through traditional stories. We could we could talk, uh, have a whole story, a whole program on Japanese ghost stories. We could have a whole program on. Uh, shapeshifters in Japan. We could have a whole story on uh, marriage and courtship. Uh, uh, we could go through the different seasons with stories. Uh, so you have a lot of Japanese stories that you know and have practiced. Yes, we have a lot of Japanese stories. And I, I happen to be of the opinion that I think your ghost stories are particularly good. <laughs> well, Japan has wonderful ghost stories. They have a tradition, yeah. I hear from my yeah. friends, in the yeah. summer of telling ghost stories to keep warm. I'm sorry, yes. it's cold. cold. <laughs> it, it does chill you down, don't you think? <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank you so much. Oh, no, the most important question is you are available for weekend work, meaning if you need to go out of state, you're available to do that because yes. I have a national audience. Um, and, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Jonathan. It's okay, and I would uh, tell people that if they would like to have some help with uh, finding 
our suggestions on resources. We'll be happy to help people online. Um, you know, if they want to email us, we can try Tell to answer them some of those questions. Um, Repeat it twice. Our website is um, www.jonathanatharold.com. And Jonathan is not spelled with an H. Correct. <laughs> it's Jonathan without the N. J-O-N-A-T-H-A. Um, you have been listening to Storytelling with Children, and you have wasted another perfectly good... No, I love that line from Car Talk. But you have enjoyed yourself here with Jonathan Wright and me, Eric Wolf, and we have been your guides to this exploration of cross-cultural storytelling. So I thank you so much, Jonathan. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you so much, Eric. It's been fun. It's been fun. And I want to remind my listeners that you can read... Jonathan's post describing questions that you may want to ask when developing your stories in another culture. And that post can be found at www.ericwolf.org. There's a blog post with various guests, and if you want to listen to other shows, you can with show notes, um, other little goodies, stories I wrote, stuff like that. And you can also sign up if you're listening right now as a podcast and you're going, hey, I want to get on this conversation. I want to be a part of this conversation too. Well, you can sign up to take part in um, the telephone conversation if you join the Storytelling with Children community. Just send us your email and your name, and you'll receive an email 24 hours or 48 hours before the conversation telling you how to access with access numbers and codes. Thanks a lot. Bye. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.